A Sickness in Time by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Berkettle. Narrated by Roseanne Sinclair. Chapter 2 Daegu, Republic of Korea, 2039. Regret, Josh Scribner said with the clarity of late hours, is the most human emotion. Then he took a long sip from his whiskey glass and set it on the table, letting the thought breathe in silence. Min Jun Dan gave a soft smile but said nothing, just sipped at his tea and waited for his friend to elaborate. Josh had really been hoping to be asked for a follow-up, but gave up the tiny battle of wills and picked up his glass to gesture with as he continued. Think about it, he said. Regret is bringing the past back into the present for examination. So right there, right there are two huge concepts. He sipped again. What the hell does an animal know about the past? When a deer is born, it already knows to run from the wolf. This is a past it did not even live through. You're talking about ancestral memory, learned behavior. I'm talking about context. The ability to summon up everything about a moment, a real moment, the images, the sounds, even what you were thinking and feeling at the exact moment you zigged when maybe you should have zagged. Regret, he concluded, is a form of time travel. He finished his whiskey. Within seconds, a subtle waiter placed another in front of him, along with a disposable nasal inhaler. Such a discreet signal. Maybe it's time to pace yourself. Those inhalers, which would de-drunk his brain, weren't cheap. But in a bar like this that serves such high-quality whiskey with real ice, they came compliments of the house. You could drink most of your liver away in one night at a bar like this. But if you came to a bar like this, a new liver was something you could afford. Josh left the inhaler on the table. He wasn't done being drunk. I'm talking about vision, he continued. Humanity takes its greatest leaps based on imagination. We see something that must be so even if we don't know how it's so. In those moments, you sense a truth. You know what I mean? That handful of moments in your life when you really sense truth. I sense truth in the moment I saw my future husband. Min Jin remarked, still taking every opportunity to derail Josh for sport. We're talking about regret. Josh insisted, spilling a splash of whiskey's worth of family groceries for a week. I regret nothing about my husband. Hang your husband. Where is he anyway? At home in Paris. He didn't feel like coming to the conference this year. He hasn't wanted to leave Paris since you moved there. It is that sort of city, isn't it? Well, Daegu's no pile of garbage. Josh paused for a moment, brain bumping its way up to where the conversation had gone. Are you going to adopt? 
We have already applied for two. God damn it, that's great. Josh was still young, only 38. But at hours like this, he could let slip the sudden and overpowering sympathy you saw in far older people. You two will be great parents. What was I talking about? Minjin sipped his tea. You were speaking of regret. Right. Josh wagged his finger several times at an empty spot by the wall. There's more than just the past and the present involved in regret. You have to see the future from the perspective of the past. You have to see a present that's different from now. Wind it back a moment and say, here, here is where we chose this path. Only a human can do that. It's mental evolution to sustain these ideas in our head. What is the point you make, my friend? Here's my question. Josh set his glass down and put his elbows on the table, the better to use both hands to stabilize his head. Is regret, is our capacity for regret, the human race imagining the possibility of time travel? Min Jun slurped his tea at a thoughtful volume, smiled again, then set the cup down and reached across the table to touch his friend at the elbow. Have you ever been to Gat Bowie? Josh's eyeballs flooded for a second, a visual signal of his brain rummaging through long, unopened drawers. Statue, out of town, big stone Buddha, hat. His hand circled his head with the final question. Yes, Min Jun looked up at the ceiling and smiled, as if transporting his senses there. You walk up a great staircase, and there you see Gat Bowie. Your troubles are far below, and his smile is so peaceful and joyous. And your problems, his fingers waggled, they fly up into the clouds like letters tied to balloons. You're ridiculous, Josh interjected. It has long been said that Gat Bowie will grant you one wish, I sometimes wonder how hard people think about their wishes before they make them. Do they start thinking when they see him? At the bottom of the staircase? When they leave on their journey to visit him? I wonder how specific they are. Do they just wish to be wealthy or happy or to find love? Or do they say, Gat Bowie, make me two inches taller? We make vague wishes, Josh countered, because we don't want our faith shattered when specifics fail to materialize. Or perhaps it's because we don't care to look closely at our lives to see what needs changing because it is almost always inside. I didn't think wishing was a Buddhist thing. Not in the way that Westerners understand the word. But to your point, does the emergence of the idea that Gat Bowie will grant wishes mean that we have imagined the truth of the Buddha? Or that we have infinite power to better our situation? Or, Min Jun finally reclaimed his cup of tea, is it proof that a bracing walk does wonders to clear the mind? Josh laughed. It was a rueful but honest one. Min Jun you're one of the best scientific minds on the earth. 
So why is it I could never catch you talking about science? But Josh, my friend, can you not see that I am? Josh sat back quietly in his chair, the momentary pleasure of Min Jun's conversation fading into the dark murmurs of the bar. Everyone in this place was a mover. There was an old Hawaiian word, YY, which meant rich. Y by itself means water. YY, then, was water water. Anyone who had water water was wealthy by the best measure the ancient people of Hawaii knew, because water meant you could grow taro, which meant you could eat. Josh hadn't fully defined the irony that brought this word and its circumstances into global applicability, but there it was. Water mattered now, and being wealthy meant you could draw a lot of it. It made you why-why, like the people who drank here, like Josh. He felt the urge to look outside into the streets of Daegu. He knew what he would see there, struggling people, some doing better than others, beggars, and the ill, and the quietly, dutifully desperate who kept all the machinery working. Glamour and decay all joined in the singular organism of the city. This bar was remarkably cunning at hiding it all. A simple trick, whose only required instrument was human nature. All that unpleasantness drained of its urgency by nothing more than a wall. You know what I'm going to say tomorrow, Josh finally said, reaching the thing he'd wanted to voice all day, but needed four glasses of whiskey to broach. Min Jun stayed neutral. I have read the same leaked preview summaries of your remarks as everyone else. Do you think I'm softballing the problem? I think you are avoiding the casting of blame with great artistry. You're mean when you want to be, Min Jun bowed his head slightly in polite apology. Mood darkening, Josh asked, experimentally, Do you think I just shouldn't bring it up at all? It seems to me that your perspective is that it has already been brought up, in that it is a problem which really exists. Well, what do you want me to do? If I point fingers, they'll burn me at the stake. People of guilty conscience always imagine a finger pointing at them and will blame you for it whether you do it or not. So should I just say nothing? Min Jin looked at his friend with disappointment or maybe just sympathy at the weight he carried. Josh, I will return your compliment to say that you have one of the greatest minds for data and systems on earth. And part of what drives you is the desire to put your answers to use. Not only am I not telling you to say nothing, I do not think you are even still deciding whether or not to say nothing. Giant finger, Josh said, eyes drooping. Ever see that old movie Yellow Submarine? Giant finger. Worked for the blue meanies. Always coming to get you. He looked ready for a snooze in his chair. They had victory in that movie by singing, didn't they? Josh nodded. Min Jun smiled. I like that movie. Min Jun, my friend, 
Did I ever tell you how I got rich? I mean, how I actually got rich? Not specifically, although I'm sure some brilliance was involved. Oh yeah, it was genius. I did something no one else on the planet thought was possible. Finally, he reached for the inhaler and shoved it up one nostril. Ask me about it sometime. As his brain came back to life, his first thought was that he would have to tip heavily, since the owners of bars like this did not philosophically approve of Min Jun Dan's serene ability to nurse one pot of tea for a whole damned evening. Although his reasoning centers were back online, Josh's body was still processing the finely aged single-barrel poison he had just enjoyed, so he hailed a cab to take his wobbly muscles home. He hoped it was a smooth ride. Josh watched his driver steer the vehicle. One hand rested atop the steering wheel but did not grip it. The finger seemed to shake slightly. The driver wasn't old, probably Josh's age but he seemed accelerated somehow, agitated, like a bird with a fast heartbeat. His head bobbed helplessly. Are you all right? Headache? Josh asked, using some of the little Korean he knew. The driver nodded, waving around at the signs of the fashionable district where Josh had been doing his drinking. City lights, too much, he answered. You're sort of right, Josh thought although not in the way you think. He slumped back into a seat and looked at those lighted signs, many in both Korean and English. They weren't splashy come-ons like the one in the Marketplace District where impulse shopping found tourists along the sidewalks. Instead, they radiated power, every logo a work of very classy art and branding. This was not a place for wandering, even the choice of where to drink was viewed as strategy. He pulled out his travel pad and opened up his speech. In the small security tab he always kept running on the screen, he immediately saw other devices in the area noticing his pad, reaching out to test it, to tap its windows, so to speak. Some of these self-guiding hack scripts were well over a decade old, but still lived in the local network, or perhaps more like haunted it. They couldn't even penetrate your average consumer device, and Josh's was far better protected than the average. It fascinated him to watch these old programs lurking and propagating without their creators. A new species of city vermin that didn't even need food, but scavenged forever, looking to spread decay and disease in the world of bites. He wondered how they saw time, these code strips that moved in nanoseconds. To a small bumblebee, the air is so thick that to fly it feels like swimming through water to us. How hard and thick was a second of human reality to these tiny, invented lives? He reread his speech. Honored and distinguished attendees, blah, blah, blah. The word sounded disgusting to him. Driver, he suddenly spoke with force. Change my mind. Take me to Gat Bowie. They're closed. Too late. They will open for me, Josh sighed. 
He hadn't encountered too many closed doors in his life that he couldn't open. So many stairs. But of course, once Josh started climbing them, turning back seemed like a waste of good bribes. The air was cool and pleasant, but Josh's muscles wanted him to be supine. Perhaps, he thought, I should be borne up on a couch. It would suit his stature to be brought up before a god in this way, wouldn't it? But Buddha wasn't a god. He was a man who figured something out that mystified others. Josh glanced at his wrist, as he did every few waking minutes. The numbers on the screen there didn't tell him the time, and they hadn't changed from his last look. This didn't set him at ease. Rather, it allowed him to continue in his normal state of unease without interruption, neither happy nor sad, but certainly not burdened with anything like hope. The stars were easier to see here, even just a few miles from the city center. With so many stairs behind him, Josh morbidly considered that it could well look like he was ascending into the black sky. But he didn't think puffy clouds and happiness waited for him up there. Multiplication In preschool, when his peers were struggling to understand that one block and two other blocks together were three blocks, he was already learning multiplication. He devoured the process of solving, made them the muscles he'd otherwise lacked. One good process could solve millions of problems. And as he got older, he learned to great reward that one good piece of code could ease millions of lives or commit millions of sins. Josh wondered about the tabulation of sins, wondered how many of their echoes applied directly to the ledger of their creators. Or maybe sins weren't even a thing to think about on your walk to see a Buddha. At last, there he was, Gat Bowie, great and smiling just as advertised, with a joyous belly and his plate-like hat, frozen in total peace, an easy thing for a statue to do. Statues are an unrealistic standard to hold a Buddhist to, Josh thought. He would have to say that to Minjin the next time they spoke. Technology now made it so simple to face what was horrible in the world. All Josh had to do was push a button or two on his wrist, and he could see more of the misery and cruelty and death and folly of man than most humans throughout history would have ever seen in their whole lives. He supposed that the counter to that was that more wonder and beauty and wisdom were available from the same button. But how could that help him? Had he ever smiled like Gat Bowie at solving a math problem? Maybe what a Buddha enjoyed could not be his. Certainly not when Josh knew what he knew about what was happening in the world, about what needed to be done. In the end, maybe they just had different missions. Josh's wobbly, weary legs finally collapsed under him and he puked on the ground before Gatbawi. And his artificially cleansed brain was ever so awake and aware of the whole putrid experience. He spat out the last driblets of whiskey and half-digested rib meat, turned and looked down at so, so many stairs, 
lamenting the taste of rot in his mouth. He turned to Gatbawi and spoke resignedly. Don't have any mouthwash, do you? Gatbawi only smiled. Didn't think so. Glad I didn't ask for anything bigger. The driver was still waiting for him. Josh would be his best client all night. Or maybe it was a real human courtesy to not leave him stranded out there. Josh was too distracted to settle the question. He gave the driver the address of his hotel and then locked his gaze out the window. He wasn't sure if he said the word screw it out loud. The driver didn't tell him one way or the other. He opened up his speech and started typing and deleting, typing and deleting. He even started to giggle from a sense of giddy doom. I'm typing a bomb, he thought to himself. Whoever thought you could type one of those? Between paragraphs, he opened up a new window and started writing a separate document, a letter. Every study he had ever read told him that multitasking was a myth and counterproductive. But it was a habit he could rarely shake. And at times like this, he was grateful. He didn't want to be monomanical. There was only one thing that had ever got his absolute and full attention, and neither of these tasks was it. As his thoughts bounced between the speech and the letter, he put words where they seemed most appropriate. There was a motivational speech he used to deliver, and for which he'd received a great deal of money every time, in which he talked about the relationship between programming languages and the true processes of the human brain. Language was a reductive delivery system and an end result of a process, and to truly understand thoughts to the extent that you could teach a machine to think, you need to see behind the words. So each phrase as he typed was a product of emotions, triggered memories, instincts, conscious strategies, and the strange sublogic human associations mashed and cooked together, and then run through a compression codec in the hopes that someone else could receive it and unpack it into something like the original. The process was never perfect, rarely even close, but everyone's minds were so uniquely preloaded with their own triggers and biases. Words fall so short, he thought, but they sure were a brilliant try for cavemen. He knew enough of what would happen because of the speech. This was why it would be necessary to have the letter ready. Something spiked in his security monitor. He maxized it and watched. Someone was trying to break in. Someone specifically after Josh. And judging by the way the assault bobbed and weaved, someone with a brain in their heads. He had a pretty good idea who was behind it. He could have tracked the attack, deployed a counterworm, but he let the thing flit around his defenses. It wouldn't work this time. Maybe working wasn't the point. Maybe someone just wanted to remind Josh that they were out there. As if he needed it. As if he ever needed it. You don't know it yet, man, Josh thought as he went back to working on his speech. But you're tomorrow just got so much worse. Josh entered his hotel suite, 
feeling a very modern blend of animated and terrible. He tapped at the master room panel, setting his alarm and starting the sleep cycle. He watched as a graph appeared, mapping the hours, too few, between now and wake-up time, and plotting gradual changes in light and ambient sound that conformed to a cloud-stored record of his sleep cycles. The machines know when I dream, he thought. But he put the thought away and went into the darkened second bedroom. The only illumination was a small power indicator on the monitor around the wrist of his daughter. Josh approached and, with the most delicate touch, activated it, checking the numbers against those on his wrist monitor. They were aligned and identical. Sierra looked so beautiful when she slept, but she slept far too much. He wondered what kind of life she lived in her sleep. He'd hoped it was better than the one she had here. Maybe you actually prefer it this way, he thought morosely. He washed his mouth out over and over, then washed his hands, then his face. Finally, he stuck his head under a cold shower and soaked it. It seemed more honest than the nasal spray. He put himself into bed, lay his head back on the pillow, and stared at the ceiling. Modern technology could do more to see him to good sleep than had ever been possible in history. So the only thing that could be keeping him awake had to be his own spirit. What a concept, he thought. If computers could do what we never could and prove the existence of a soul. It didn't relax him. His thoughts almost never did. A Sickness in Time by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle Narrated by Roseanne Sinclair If you love listening to this podcast, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Learn more about the novel by visiting www.sicknessintime.com 